Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is from Nehemiah chapter 3, which is found on page 485 of the Church Bibles. Builders of the Wall. Nehemiah chapter 3. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Barna, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshina gate was repaired by Joida, son of Passia, and Meshulam, son of Besediah. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by the men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Merinoth places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabniah, made repairs next to him. Malchijah, son of Harim, and Hashab, son of Parhath Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zanoa. They rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts of bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malchijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalon, son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Asbuk, ruler of a half-district of Bethzur, made repairs to a point opposite the tombs of David, 
as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rahum, son of Barney. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Levites under Binui, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Barak, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house, and next to them, Azariah, son of Masiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Binui, son of Henadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle in the corner, and Palal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Padiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel, made repairs to a point opposite the water gate towards the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoya repaired another section from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants, opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Let me say to you, the first thing I did this morning was apologize to Janet. <laughs> well, let me add uh, my welcome to that of Will's from earlier. It really is uh, lovely to see you and uh, lovely to be together. And uh, again, a particularly warm welcome if, if you're visiting us, if you're new amongst us, if you're coming and wondering whether or not to be part of this church family, then you're most welcome. Well, we're about to dig into God's word. And uh, before we do that, would you join me? For a short prayer. Father, we know that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And so we ask that you would do that for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
What unites us as the Lord's people? What makes for real, lasting, binding unity among us as the family of God? Now, some will suggest unity through institutions. Be united under bishops, under archbishops. Some suggest unity through shared doctrinal agreement on as many things as we can. Certainly, there's an important moment and a place for that. In Nehemiah chapter 3, we see the people united in an incredible way. But what is it that united them? Now, we saw last week how Nehemiah traveled from Susa in Persia uh, to Jerusalem, uh, a a journey of 1,000 miles or so, to inspect the broken city walls in Jerusalem. And we saw how he rallied them to to get them to work with stories of how God had been working miracles against the odds to get him there in the first place. And if God can reverse the decision of a king, then he can certainly raise these walls from the ruins. And together, the people of God declared, end of chapter 2, verse 18, let's start rebuilding. Let's start rebuilding Jerusalem. It's a line, actually, that summarizes the whole chapter, uh, the whole of chapter 3. The people rose up and built. And they were united in an incredible way. And in 52 days, they did what seemed impossible. They rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. Is that what unites the people of God? Is bricklaying the key to church unity? Is urban planning the great ecumenical hope? No. It wasn't building that united the people. It was rebuilding Jerusalem. Does The question we want to ask ourselves is, what does that mean for us? What does this look like for us day in, day out? Does rebuilding Jerusalem have any direct relevance? Now, I'm reminded of that old English hymn by William Blake, synonymous, of course, for those of us who are cricket fans, with the Barmy Army anthem, Jerusalem. We probably all know the hymn, maybe from school, and it's quite bizarre. It basically asks a series of questions to which the answers are all no. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountain green? No. And was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? No. And then the final lines of the chorus. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Now, what does William Blake mean by building Jerusalem? Actually, he means something not dissimilar to what the Bible means by it. You see, let me explain this. Jerusalem is Zion. In the Old Testament, it's the earthly counterpart to the heavenly city. And building up Jerusalem is establishing a gospel witness to heavenly heavenly realities even here on earth. So Blake was actually onto something, because that is the the kind of way Jerusalem and its structures are spoken about in the Bible. And we know know this to be true, don't we? Buildings don't declare God's praises anymore. But we do. As we've been thinking about this morning, we are living stones who witness to Christ, 
We are the true house of God. Our work of building up Jerusalem is not about geography or politics or architecture or bricklaying. We don't declare God's praises by having an impressive walled city or a beautiful refurbished church. We declare God's praises by speaking of him who called us out of darkness into glorious light. That is the true work of building Jerusalem. And even in the Old Testament, they understood this. Building up the walls was never simply about urban planning. It was about gospel witness to the nations. Israel's Messiah is the one true temple, the one true meeting place with God. And the walls were a picture of that. And actually, in Nehemiah, we see the witness of the walls. It actually works. So if you just flick forward, turn over a page to Nehemiah and verse 17, here is the evangelistic result of their wall building. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. This is their evangelism. No doubt, the people gathered together with Nehemiah. They ate with him. And you can imagine them talking about the gracious hand of God that enabled this to happen in the first place. Here he is witnessing to God. And this is what unites the people of God. In every age, what brings unity is mission. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, you will be my witnesses to the whole earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And that is a collective you. It's a mission given to God's people, to all of us. And in these verses before us this morning, God gives us three principles to help us in our mission, to help us in our gospel witness. So I want us to notice first, all the people of God were involved. Now the story, if you think about it, could have moved from chapter 2 on into chapter 4 and really not missed a beat. It wouldn't have affected the narrative in much way at all if Nehemiah had just said, the people rose up and built the wall. But that's not what he did. Instead, we have 32 verses of details, of gates and names and occupations of people. Why did Nehemiah do that? What do they tell us about the message of this book? Now, I'm sure we know the phrase, the medium is the message, which basically means that the way you say something communicates a message in and of itself. And so a text message is less personal than a phone call, and a phone call is less personal than a face-to-face -face conversation. So you communicate something in the way that you communicate. The way you say something, say something. So what do all of these names and places tell us? Well, apart from the fact that this was a, a very big job, it's Nehemiah's way of telling us that everyone was involved, from the youngest to the oldest. Now, before we, we unpack that together, I just want us to, to, to look briefly uh, at, this, at uh, something around the, the scale of the job, and in particular, the order in which the gates uh, were built and uh, you see there, there's a, a brief, uh, a small sort of simple plan that I've, I've put up there. And uh, I think it's worth just asking ourselves, you know, whereabouts did Nehemiah start the building? Now, you'll remember uh, from last week that when Nehemiah uh, arrived, he went around and he inspected uh, the gates. And he started at the bottom, at the southern part 
of the walls, the valley gate, the dung gate, uh, and the fountain gate, because that was the only part of the wall that was accessible. He couldn't get any further around because it was so badly damaged. Uh, and one assumes that it would have been very easy for him to have just patched up these walls very quickly, and this would have been a real morale booster uh, to the troops. Look here how the work is progressing. But no, he decided instead to start the work of rebuilding where the walls were inaccessible, at the northern end of the walls, at the Sheep Gate, if you can see that. Now, do you have any idea why he started rebuilding there? Just looking at the plan at the, at the city, does that give us a clue? It's because that is the area that surrounded the temple, the spiritual heart and the center of Jerusalem, the center of Israel's witness to the nations. Thank you. So let's take a look then at the, at the opening verses. Verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zacchaeus, son of Imri, built next to them. Now, I want you to notice straight away that everyone here is involved, and the priests began the work led by the high priest, Eliashib. And they finished their section first. And some may find this odd because everyone knows that clergy only work on Sundays. <laughs> In verse 2, we've got a whole town coming to help. And next to, to the men of Jericho, an individual called Sacker. So we've got towns on one hand and individuals on the other. And they work anti-clockwise. Again, if we could just have the, the plan back up. They work anti-clockwise around the wall. They start there with, with the sheep gate then build the adjoining section between the gates. Then verse 3, you'll notice it's the fish gate. And they go all the way round until they get back, they get back to, the, to the sheep gate, verse two, 32. And there's 10 gates in total. Thank you. And everyone is involved. In verse 6, you've got an example of a duo building in pairs. In verse 7, you've got an alliance of two regions working together on a section. In verse 3, notice there's a family. <clears throat> in verse 12, there's a family which explicitly mentions that the daughters are helping out as well. In verse 13, you've got a whole tribe working on a section, the Levites. So from tribes and regions and towns down to families and pairs and individuals, they're all committed to this one work. And every class of person is involved. At verse 26, you'll see there, temple servants. Further down, verse 29, we see a guard. But then if you back up to verse 8, we see uh, there there's artisans. Verse 8, goldsmiths and perfume makers. Now, if you were to take a tour of the walls in, 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 your, imag in, in your imagination, you would see every person at their appointed task. And there were no shirkers and no grumblers. All were united together in their objective to get the wall completed, to finish the mission. I mean, how irresistible a church would be with an army of workers like that. So we've seen that all were involved. We see next that they work together. Now, just before we, we leave at this point, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things worth mentioning. One for today, 
and one to bear in mind for a future sermon. And both of these points we find here in verses 1 and 2. Now, the one thing for today, you'll notice once the sheep gate was completed, we read verse 1, Eliashib and his fellow priests dedicated it and set its doors in place. They consecrated the wall. They set it apart, if you like, for the work of the Lord. The wall was to be a witness. It was also to contribute to the peace, or to use Old Testament language, the shalom of the city. The wall was to keep out any sort of opposition or any sort of trouble, anything that was unclean from coming into the city. The wall was to keep out. And one thing to bear in mind for the future. I want you to notice this particular detail because it sets the context for what happens in a future chapter. Verse 3. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. The Jesna, Jeshna gate, the same, verse 6. They put its doors and bolts and bars in place. The same for the valley gate, you'll notice. The dung gate and the fountain gate. Bolts and bars were put in place. But... We read in verse 1, Eliashib and the priests dedicated the wall and set its doors in place. There is here an obvious omission. They failed to set the bolts and bars in place. And it's a detail that sets the stage. It's an early hint that the doors are not secure. And the priest, who should have known better, they should have known better, the priests, will let uncleanness into the city. You know, we long, we long, don't we, for peace. We long for shalom, for peace, for, for an overall well-being, for all the things to be right inside me, inside my head, to be right between me and God, to be right between me and others. It's interesting to see that in every rendering of, of a map of, of Jerusalem in the Old Testament, and often you see them in children's Bibles, up until uh, Jesus' time, you have the wall, and outside the wall is Golgotha, Calvary, the cross. You see, Jesus went to where the unclean, the enemy, and the opposition, the evil was meant to be kept out. Jesus went there, and he died there. And he gave his life there. He was raised there in order to bring about the peace and the shalom that we all desperately long for. So we've seen that they were all involved in rebuilding Jerusalem, in being God's witness to the nations. But the way Nehemiah communicates this exciting story tells us something else. The people of God work together. This is my second point. Now, we learn from the New Testament that there are two things you cannot say. You can't say any longer once you become a Christian. The first is, you don't need me. You see, we can't, we can't push people away. Everyone in the body of Christ needs everyone else. The second thing is, I don't need you. I'm okay, thanks. You see, we do need others. And even if we don't think it at the moment, well, a day will come when we realize we do. And it's the awareness of that simple truth. You need me and I need you. That makes all the difference 
in a church. You see, what that says about a church, it says that this is a place I feel safe to be vulnerable. It's a church where we'll find living, warm, vital, loving, healthy fellowship. And something I know that so many of us enjoy about Christ Church Forward. And we long for those of us who are new and been part of this church family that everybody would experience that feeling and that sense of belonging. Now, all through this account, you'll find the phrase, next to him worked so-and-so, and and next to them worked others. Take a look at verse 4. Merimuth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repair the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bena, also made repairs. They work together, and they work wholeheartedly. Now, one exception you'll notice is verse 5. Take a look. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not, not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. They're not going to lower themselves to such menial tasks. And boy, did they miss out on being part of something glorious. It is a, a sad aside, but it doesn't take away from what is going on here. It actually highlights the fact that on the whole, this was almost a unanimous response from the people. Now, yes, of course, they worked with different degrees of enthusiasm for the work. There were some, like the ruler in verse 16, who worked up to a point. There were some who who just worked. And then in verse 20, don't you love this? We read about Barak, who zealously repaired his section. We can imagine him, can't we, really getting stuck in. He's almost certainly singing. And, uh, you know, we're grateful, aren't we, for those Baraks in amongst our church family. So what are we to take away then from these verses? What do they say to us? Well, there's, there's at least three things. Something about community, something about God's care, and something about God's presence. On community, this Old Testament uh, chapter here is an example of what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says that each part of the church, each part of the body is to work together, which makes the body grow up so that it builds itself in love. The people here in this chapter, they're putting aside their own rights. They're putting aside their own prerogatives to get together and to serve and to work for the good of the city and the good of of others who they're working with. It's impossible, isn't it, to, to be objective. But if we try and just stand back for a moment, I'm sure you'd agree with me that this kind of selfless community seems very attractive. You know, they're all involved. They're they're working together. They're part of something bigger than themselves, which seems to have meaning and eternal purpose. It's not about me and and my world, but about the community and the purpose of God to extend his kingdom, his mission. And it's gospel community. And it's deeply attractive if it works. It's not about the individual. It's not about my status or my role. It's about doing my bit quietly for the good and the well-being of this place I love and serve. And it's life-giving because it's not about me. It's all about others. It's so true, isn't it? That it's better to give than to receive. In fact, we even see this example of self-effacing service from Nehemiah who is not even listed in this chapter. He doesn't include his name 
as one of the workers. You see, he's showing rather that when he went to Jerusalem and he saw the damage and he recruited the people, he got to know the people. He knew who they were and where they were from and who their family was. And he gave credit where credit was due. He was a pastor. Now, there's something here then about community. There's also something about God's care. There's a delightful, humble posture about the people of God. There's no individualism in seeking the good of Jerusalem. But you'll also notice that the people don't lose their identity either. The individual still matters. That's why their names are included and written down in the pages of Scripture. There's dignity with each person in this group. And again, doesn't that say something about God's care and concern for these people? God knows their names. And their names are recorded in the passages of Holy Scripture. And if God knows the names of people like Merimuth and Zadok and Hananiah and Malkijah, who was stalwart enough to repair the Dungate? Can't we be confident that he knows our names? That he knows you by name. He knows me by name. He's made every effort to get to know us and be involved in every part of our life. And if he knows us by name, he knows the aches and the pains and the things that we carry and the burdens. And he's interested and he's concerned. And he wants to be part of that. He knows us by name. But actually, the real significance of this chapter is not with the names and it's not even with the community. The real significance of this chapter is with something that's hardly even mentioned in this chapter at all. There's also something here about God's presence. Now, if you remember from the, the book of Esther, that one of the things that sets the book of Esther apart is that God's name is not mentioned at any point in the book. The great paradox of the book of Esther is that God is omnipotently present even when he seems to be most conspicuously absent. And there's something about that in this chapter as well. God's name is not listed, but he is so evidently at work knitting the people together in faith. But there's also something else here that is not mentioned explicitly in this chapter. And it's the focal point of this whole chapter, the whole city, the whole building project. It's just between the lines of the narrative. It's at the heart of rebuilding Jerusalem, the temple which represents the dwelling place of God. It represents the presence of God amongst the people. It represents what Nehemiah was praying about all those weeks, that God would show up and that God would come to be amongst his people and would lead his people. It's the goal of all the covenant promises of God for his people that he would dwell among them and that he would be their God and that they would be his people. And ultimately, this is why everyone was involved. It's why they worked together. And finally, thirdly, it's why they completed their task. You know, perhaps what I love most about all these diverse contributions is how organic it all is. See, Nehemiah, he didn't sort of give everyone 20 meters of wall to fix. He didn't assign anything to anyone as far as we know. Everyone took, on, everyone took on what they could. 
and how they could out of their own free choice. Some did a 500-meter stretch. Others did a meter or two outside their home. But we see they all get a mention because it's not about the glory of the builder. It's about taking part in God's mission of witness to the world. And somehow, God overruled and made it all work together. And it came together super fast. And actually, this lack of, of, of central control probably explains why they chose to work on the walls nearest their homes. As this was the part that was in front of them. It's where God had placed them, so they simply got on with it. For example, there at verse 10, Jediah made repairs opposite his house. Verse 23 tells her of certain men who made repairs in front of their houses. And Asariah made repairs beside his house. You see, this is, this is God's design for ministry. God has placed all of us strategically where he wants us to be. Our place of work. Our local school, our university our own home and our neighbors on our streets that we are to know and get to love and to care for, our church. We've all been placed there by God. And this is brought out beautifully here in this chapter as we watch these people laboring for God in their own neighborhoods. See, we have to see in these people's work their faith and their hope in the promises of God. And yet there is something about the book of Nehemiah that's anticlimactic. You see, neither Ezra or Nehemiah tells us about the glory of God filling the temple in their lifetime. And that's because the hopes and the fulfillment for the Old Testament promises would not come about while they were alive. The hopes and expectations would not come until the coming of Jesus the Messiah, the true temple, the presence of God who took on flesh and dwelt among his people. The people of God get on with what God has them to do, and it comes together in an extraordinary way. And that leaves us then with one final question. What does it look like for you and for me to do my bit of building Jerusalem in our office or with our neighbors or in our university. Well, first of all, we need to look to the true temple of God. We need to look to Jesus, the eternal Christ, the priest and king, the righteous branch who sets the world to rights, the just judge who is our righteousness. We need to start with this. Jesus is my righteousness. See, my wall building is not my righteousness. I'm no more righteous if I build 500 meters, and I'm no less righteous if I don't build 500 meters. I'm no more righteous for witnessing to Christ than when I fail evangelistically. My righteousness is not my witnessing. My righteousness is Christ. Therefore, I am secure. I am at peace. I am free. I'm free to stop fretting over whether God loves me or whether he forgives me for that sin. He's already forgiven me through the work of grace at the cross. I'm free. Now, Christ is my righteousness and Christ is my priest. He has brought me to the most high God. He has shed his blood to cleanse me from my sin. He has risen again to give me life. 
He has ascended to the Father's right hand and he's taken me with him. Do we know that for ourselves? Even this week, even today, after all our sin this past week, after all our pettiness, after all our spiritual dryness, after all our suffering this week, our priest has been praying for us and presenting us to our Heavenly Father without blemish and free from any accusation. So today, sinners, as we are, we can call the Most High God, the Creator of the universe, Father. And He beams at us in delight in the same way that Paul and Joe were beaming at Isaac. Because Jesus is our priest. He is our righteousness. He is the temple in whom we have God's presence. And if you know that, and to the degree that you know that, you know what you can do? You can build up the walls. If you want. You can start bringing others to Jesus. You can witness to Christ, maybe in a sort of big Christian union ways, maybe just with the person outside your house, with your next door neighbor, or maybe with a, over a quiet coffee with a friend. See, I, I don't know how it will happen. I don't have to know. It's God's mission. He's the, the great evangelist, but he will build us up as living stones. We will be witnesses to this world. And maybe, just maybe, in two and a half thousand years, we'll get to read a, a heavenly equivalent of Nehemiah chapter 3. And I wonder what Nehemiah, or the equivalent, might say. Chris gave up his Friday nights for years to lead the youth group. Jill and Mike, well, they actually fostered kids uh, from difficult backgrounds and taught them the love of Jesus. Several churches, they cooperated to plant churches in some of the roughest communities in Sheffield. Three workers in the same office started a, a prayer group for their unsaved work colleagues. Four Christians began a Bible study for international students. Football lovers, they, they clubbed together to put on regular events where Christ is spoken of. Pauline prayed tirelessly for her friends and family to receive Jesus. Now, two and a half thousand years from now, what might they say about Christ Church Forward? What might they say about us? See, there's nothing that you have to do. But maybe there's something you can do, something that you want to do. Amen. Well, we're going to sing again in a moment, but before we do that, would you join me for a prayer? Father, we praise you for the work of the gospel and the message of salvation. We praise you for your love for us and for the privilege that you give us to work in your kingdom. We ask that you would help us to be faithful Help us to be committed. And would you use us by your spirit to bring about your glory and to extend your witness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.